Hey, Carolyn, how's it going? It is going. Tell me about who we're going to speak with today. This is a woman who I've had the privilege of meeting on a couple of occasions, but I have just loved to watch in action as an amazing advocate and somebody who is leading an essential organization, not only just in the medical assistance and dying space, but I would say an essential organization because of its advocacy at the end of life. So we're talking today with Helen Long, the CEO at Dying with Dignity Canada. And Dying with Dignity Canada, as I'm hoping many of our listeners are already familiar with, is a national organization that works hard to ensure access to quality end-of-life care through their education, their support, and their advocacy. And although I've sat at a couple tables now with Helen, I was interested to hear that she has worked in not-for-profit sector, including some really fascinating and important organizations such as ALS Canada, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, to go from mad to made, I can see that transition. And it also did some work around food as well. I'm really curious about all of what you've just said because I, I really am, again, have been to those conferences uh, alongside you and seen Helen from a distance and obviously visiting the website as I have. But I haven't accessed Dying with Dignity Canada in a in a, an in-person manner. So I'm, I'm really keen to hear what Helen has to share with us today, but also those items that you just mentioned, how she draws on that bigger bank of experience that she has. So I think, yeah, let's get this conversation started. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Helen. We really appreciate your time. I'm wondering if we can begin with you telling us a little bit about Dying with Dignity Canada for our listeners who just might not be all that familiar with your fabulous organization. Yeah, sure. And thanks, Kathy, for having me today. So Dying with Dignity Canada is a national human rights charity. We're committed to improving quality of dying, protecting end-of-life rights, and helping Canadians to avoid unwanted suffering. Um, you've probably heard about us mostly in the context of assisted dying because of the work around the legislation that's been going on over the last couple of years. But we really look at a much broader spectrum of end of life. Uh, and we do a lot of work related to not only advocacy, but also education and support. So that is quite the broad uh, spectrum around end of life. And uh, we'll be fully transparent. Helen, I've had the privilege of sitting at a couple of different tables uh, with you. And I think in terms of an advocacy organization, Dying with Dignity Canada is excellent at positioning the organization very well to be heard and seen by a wide variety of Canadians. And I'm interested, the title of the organization is Dying with Dignity. What does it mean to die with dignity? And on the flip side of that, what does it mean to die without dignity? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really a personal choice and a personal question. It's about having the death that aligns with your own personal values. So for some people, it's it's the place that you're in or the people you're with. For some people, it's that you have palliative care or you have assisted dying or you have a natural death. So really, it's just aligning your desires at end of life, your value system with the way you live your life and having the death that ultimately you choose um, as best you can. So having that choice is integral to, I think, the work that Dying with Dignity Canada does. Absolutely. I mean, for us, it's really about compassion, ending suffering, and most importantly, personal choice and autonomy. Thank you. 
Helen, what brought you in particular to Dying with Dignity Canada? Yeah, so I had worked uh, previously as a volunteer with ALS Canada, and I had a friend, my friend Bill, was diagnosed with ALS, and this opportunity came up just kind of in that same window where Bill was talking about, you know, his end of life and what that looked like. And I just saw this as a really great opportunity for me to take my, you know, transferable skills, the skill set I had in advocacy and in um, organizations and not-for-profits, and my personal interest and experience to really make change for other people and to to help to you know create create changes that would allow people to make choices and to have the services and supports they needed at that difficult time in their life not only for them but also for their friends their families their loved ones um so it was really just the you know one of those stars aligning kind of moments that personally i've felt really attracted to and and really thought i could be part of something important. And when I read your bio, Helen, you'll, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but you previously worked in food security. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, in the um, organic and natural food space. So helping Canadians, you know, in a very different way to make choices that really support their health. And again, you know, a lot of advocacy work in that area as well. And I know I personally volunteer on the board of a fabulous organization called Roots Community Food Center. And when we talk about dignity, when we talk about community and advocacy, to me, I think they're all part of a continuum. And so I can kind of trace some similarities between that idea around dignified care or dignified community engagement or dignified citizenship um, in the different streams of your work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's about choice and it's about people, you know, living their best life that, you know, I know that expression is a bit trite, but it's really that they're able to access what they need in a dignified way to be part of a community that's bigger than them. It's all those pieces. And sure, I'm with you. It might be a trite statement, but it's an essential one. And whatever it means to that person in terms of how they situate themselves within their community and what's important to them and what they hope for in the future, because we are evolving beings in terms of our growth and development. And we need food and dignified care, whatever that looks like to support us in doing that. So Helen, can I ask, since you've been the executive director of Dying with Dignity Canada, what are you most proud of that your organization has achieved? Yeah, I mean, uh, so many things. Uh, I think we're really proud that we have such a great support base. Um, Canadians or people across Canada, they're so engaged, they're so interested, they're so supportive in so many ways, whether it's financially or as volunteers. And we couldn't do the work we do without that group. So I think we've seen really increased active engagement in my time here, and that's been really important. I think from a legislative perspective, obviously we spend a ton of time, as we've said, talking about advocacy. Seeing the changes in Bill C-7 in 2021 has to be a highlight. Um, Audrey's amendment, for those who don't know, Audrey Parker was a woman in Nova Scotia who had wanted to spend one final Christmas with her family. She was dying of cancer, but she was afraid she would lose the capacity to have an assisted death. So she had to die early. And one of the things that Bill C-7 brought us was Audrey's amendment or the waiver, the waiver of final consent, and that allows people to actually put in place an agreement so they don't have to die early. You know, I think for people across Canada who are in that position and in Audrey's memory, that was a, a huge change that we're really proud of. Um, 
you know, we're proud of the work we do to support Canadians. So whether it's developing resources like a patient rights guide or an advanced care planning kit or taking those phone calls from people who are on a journey towards end of life, um, you know, that's a really important part of what we do. So those three things, if I had to pick a few, those are the, the big ones. Thank you, Helen. I want to circle back to a phrase you used just this moment ago. For those Canadians who don't know, or for some of our listeners who might not know about Bill C-7, and I think that's a big challenge for those of us who work in medical assistance and dying. And I completely appreciate that Dying with Dignity has a much wider purview. But to talk about MAID in particular for a moment, what do you think Canadians are most confused of about medical assistance and dying? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I think as much as we work really hard to bring information and education and awareness, there's 40 million Canadians. So that's a lot of people that have to learn things. So I think the biggest misconceptions most recently, um, you know, the perception that the safeguards for MAID are inadequate and that anyone can access MAID. You know, I could tell you a hundred stories about people who've had a terrible, terrible time trying to access MAID. Uh, that people can be found eligible because they have a lack of social supports or housing or food security. Um, none of those are reasons that you can receive made. They may be factors in your life, but you still have to meet the eligibility criteria. Um, that someone else can make you have made. There is no role in the assisted dying process for anyone else other than the clinician you're working with. A person has to choose, a person has to request, a person has to be assessed and approved. There is actual assessment of whether you're being coerced. So, you know, we see stories where people talk about their fears of being forced to have made. That's not a reality. No one else can make you have made. Um, there's a few things just around the eligibility for MAID that you have to have a terminal illness. That is not the case. Uh, that you can't have MAID if you have dementia. Some people with dementia can access MAID. Um, and then finally, I think the big one most recently in the media a lot this year was that when MAID for those with a mental disorder as a sole underlying condition becomes legal in March of next year, that we're going to let people in crisis or who are newly diagnosed or suicidal have made. That will not be the case. They will generally be people with a long-standing history of mental disorders who have tried many, many treatments over many, many years. And I expect it will be a uh, a long assessment period. We're thinking at least a minimum of 90 days. And really it'll depend on each individual, very much a personal assessment. So most of those I think are grounded in that lack of understanding or information um, that's available in the public. Thanks, Helen. And I'm just circling back to when you were talking about the achievements and things that you're proud of that Dying with Dignity Canada has achieved. And I got to admit, I was a little bit surprised you didn't mention the World Federation versus a Dying Conference that Dying with Dignity Canada hosted last November. Because, yes, I think the organization has phenomenal scope within the country, but we're also a bit of a flagship. By us, I mean Canada, but specifically Dying with Dignity Canada internationally as well. And so I know from other conferences that I've been a part of that people are looking to Canada for leadership around assisted dying. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that in terms of how your organization has that role as well. Yeah, the conference, absolutely. The conference was a great event and it was so amazing 
you know, just to be with people from other countries who are either coming to where we are, have been where we are, or who don't have any assisted dying laws and are really starting to fight the battle. So as a member of the World Federation of Right to Die Societies, um, you know, we play an active role in providing information around what's going on in Canada, working with other countries. Um, you know, in particular, we've had some discussions with Australia, the UK, Ireland, you know, giving our experience where we can to help them as they travel down the same road. Every legislative process, every country does not have the same system. So in Canada, you know, we had the charter, which helped us constitutionally. In the US, every state will have to enact a dying law themselves. So different challenges for different countries. But, you know, whatever we can do to support those who are looking for ideas or information that we already have, uh, we're more than happy to do. And I would say it's a great relationship, a great organization. I have lots of new friends in uh, other countries who who have this common interest. And it's uh, it's exciting when you can get together and, and brainstorm and share and grow with each other. I had the privilege of attending that conference as well, Helen, and it was an incredible meeting of so many people coming together, thinking about what it means to have that right to die. To go back to Kathy's point about the world watching Canada, Bill uh, 11, recently out of Quebec, has made the stipulation that faith-based organizations cannot refuse to provide MAID. And that's something that comes up in our news across Canada with some regularity. Um, what kind of impact do you think this will have? Yeah, I think what we would like to see coming out of that is the rest of the country seeing the leadership that Quebec has demonstrated. We firmly believe that anyone in Canada should be able to have made in a publicly funded healthcare facility. And there are a lot of, uh, we call them institutional religious obstructions. Um, so faith-based facilities, getting public funding who don't allow made, don't allow assessments, won't provide information, force people to be transferred, won't allow people to be admitted. Um, you know, those things go on and, and they're not right. There's a very recent story I'm sure you guys have seen in the news around Samantha O'Neill and her forced transfer at St. Paul's in Vancouver. Those situations are not acceptable. That is not a death with dignity by anyone's definition. And I think what Quebec has done is they have shown us the road. It's up to the rest of the country to get on board and follow them. Thank you for that, Helen. And if I can bring it home a little bit to where I am geographically located, as you know, I am in the booming metropolis of Thunder Bay, Ontario. And while I love my community for many reasons and recognize its challenges as well, one of the challenges is around accessing MAID and particularly what you were talking about in terms of the religious institutions. And we have St. Joseph's Care Group here in Thunder Bay, which does great care in many ways, but does not allow MAID in its institution. And this means that our one and only hospice unit in our region is located within the institution. And I'm wondering, do you have advice for a person who needs a palliative approach to care, like many Canadians at the end of life? and wants to be in hospice for that care, but also really would like to be able to access MAID. What could that individual or those people who love and care for that person do in this situation? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one um, because there is no there is no reason you should be restricted from receiving palliative care because you've decided to have made. We know, and unfortunately, the, you know, you're talking about where you are. We know that's not the only uh, remote community where that's a problem or that's what happens. So we know some facilities will say that if you are planning on having made, you can't um, be admitted here. You know, I'm not encouraging people to lie, but I think suggesting that maybe your decision isn't fully made, uh, maybe avoiding that conversation. I'm always a big believer in how can you reach a, a discussion point before you make a big deal. So, you know, asking the facility, is there any way to get there? Writing a letter to their board or their executive director, making those requests when you can, seeing if your physician or nurse practitioner will speak on your behalf. We're always happy to write letters and, and try to support. Um, talk to your member of parliament or provincial parliament in your location and see if they'll get involved. And, you know, I think initially try to see if someone can make an exception or, or compromise in some way to, to let you get the care you want. You know, people should be able to have palliative care. 80% of Canadians who have made actually have palliative care first um, and they should be able to. So, so those are the easy things. If that doesn't work, I mean, go to the media. We are working on changing this in the near future. We're very involved in a bigger campaign that's going on, uh, which is currently very focused in Vancouver because of that Samantha O'Neill story. But it's our hope that this will end. So, um, you know, talk to the media, talk to your politicians, give us a call. And uh, I, I can't guarantee that we're going to be able to help every person actually achieve what they want. But if we all don't talk about it, if we all don't raise our voices, it'll never change. And to that end, if your listeners are interested in getting involved, if you visit our website, dimewithdignity.ca, and click on the advocacy tab, there is an easy-to-use letter writing tool. So every Canadian who feels this is important can send a letter and, and talk about why, for them personally, this is important discussion. Thank you. Take it away, Carrie. Thank you. So Helen, this, um, I think, really segues nicely into that discussion that uh, Kathy and I have a lot um, with one another, but also with our guests and with the wider community. So the Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association recently stated that they are going to align themselves with the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care, that they see medical assistance in dying and palliative care as two very separate entities. And yet... Um, interestingly, there are many who believe that MAID is a tool, another tool in, say, a palliative care toolbox. Um, can you share your comments and, and thoughts about the CHPCA's uh, really making that definition between the two, please? Yeah, so I think I'd like to start by saying, uh, yes, people do use that term toolbox and and consider both things tools. And people also use the expression continuum uh, to include both terms. One of the first things I learned from people in the palliative care community when I got here is that uh, a lot of them don't like that. Uh, they believe that need and palliative care are two separate things. For me, they're both end of life things. So I don't use the term toolbox. I don't use the term continuum. I talk about MAID and I talk about palliative care. People should be able to choose one or both or neither. It's really up to them. Uh, in terms of the statement, I mean, I think what's really great about the statement that the uh, Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association has released is that it provides clarity to their members. Uh, it basically says that they will neither promote 
or a pose made. And I think that's important. People should be able to get the information they want. We know that there are some facilities and some healthcare practitioners within those facilities who want to be able to support their patients. Supporting doesn't necessarily mean providing made. It means being able to provide patient-centric care to the people who have decided that made is what they want to do. So I think by clarifying that they're not supporting or opposing, they're giving people permission to be where they want to be uh, in that activity. And I think that's important. And I agree fullheartedly as somebody who has been very active within the palliative care community for many years. When I first began our research projects in medical assistance and dying, I was surprised to hear, particularly from participants, and your stat really resonated with me, that 80% of the people who are choosing MAID have also had access to palliative care or a palliative approach to care. And I heard that in our research as well. And I was interested in thinking maybe it's because people are Googling me and recognizing that I'm a palliative care person, that they want me to know that they did go down this first because I wasn't asking it. And I really should have been asking it. In our new work, we are asking that question because I, I too, am excited about the Canadian Hospice Palliative Care Association's recognition that it's both opportunities for people at the end of life can work together more closely. Because in my experiences, I'm hearing at the bedside with the practitioners um, physicians, social workers, nurses, that people are a lot more open to having those discussions with people and for people to recognize that they can have what Carrie Lynn and I talk about so much is about true choice at the end of life. And I'm hopeful that it's organizations like Dying with Dignity Canada that can support our more national and provincial organizations, um, ours in terms of palliative care, to be able to see the benefit for Canadians by having these opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we try to work with any organization where we can make a difference and help to support end of life. But we've seen, you know, even prior to the revised statement coming out, we have heard from hospices who are either reconsidering their made policy, they're a new hospice, they're developing a made policy. So there is change happening. There are clinicians, I mean, you know, doctors like James Downer, Sandy Buckman, who are in both spaces and who are doing great work and ensuring that in their smaller community, they're spreading the word. So I think, you know, change is hard, change takes time, but I think we're seeing some shift and I think it's great, you know, if we can all keep the patient front and center, that's what's really important, right? The patient and their choice. So we're hopefully optimistic that this will lead to more change down the road. I think so too. And I'm really hopeful, particularly as you talked about medical assistance and dying, including people for whom mental health is the primary disorder. I think the people who provide a palliative approach to care know and understand and assess around suffering in such an intimate way that it would be a shame for them not to be closely aligned to this, as Dr. Danner and Dr. Buckman are excellent examples of people who can marry both forms of end-of-life care. Yes, and I want to thank you, Helen, for using uh, language in the way that you did. We often have that discussion around how powerful language is and that terminology makes a big difference. And I love that you use the idea that it's an umbrella and that it's end of life, because I think when people get really attached to linear phrases like continuum and toolbox, what we forget to do is what you said earlier about looking at 
Canadians on a case by case, looking at who the person is, taking in all the, the constellation of factors around a person at end of life. So I really appreciate that you kind of pulled us back and asked us to look at that, again, that constellation of what surrounds a person at end of life. This is my favorite question, and Kathy always lets me ask it. If you could wave a magic wand, Helen, and change one thing about MADE in Canada, what might you change? Hmm. Well, you heard my list of all of the, th the things that I think are out there wrong. So, you know, if I could summarize it, I would say, you know, recognizing there needs to be safeguards. Really, what I would like to see is timely access to MADE based on the law and the charter without barrier, um, that everyone is able to apply, whether they're eligible or not, everyone is able to apply if it's appropriate to do so. If we narrowed it down, there's really two things concretely that I would like to see. The first is that end to institutional religious obstruction. So no more forced transfers, no more refusal to provide information, no more refusal for admission. The second would be advanced requests for MAID, which we haven't really talked about yet, but the number one thing that we hear from supporters, and 82% of Canadians support this in national polling, is the ability to write an advanced request. So the document that says, when this, 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 this criteria is met, I would like to be able to have MAID, whether I'm able to provide capacity and request it myself or not. And we hear that most commonly from people with a family history of dementia or Alzheimer's. I think it's a pretty, you know, pretty well known. There is a private members or private senators bill, I guess, Senator Wallen's bill is in the Senate right now talking about advanced requests. It was a key issue in the special joint committee's work. Um, the government's response to that was not as overwhelmingly positive as we would have liked to have seen, but I think this is what Canadians want. This is the most important issue to people when they talk about end of life. So that's, that's the other, you know, if I had to narrow them down, those are the big changes that I would like to see. When we talk about people wanting to have advanced requests, I think about some of the work that my research team has done in long-term care. Um, and we are now hearing people say, you know, I would rather have access made than go into long-term care. And so this, to me, links to our discussion around true choice. There are so many gaps that have been made even more evident since COVID within some of our Canadian systems. So in terms of poverty reduction, in terms of care for elderly, um, I hear people arguing that we're using made as a bit of a stopgap for some of that. Um, what, what's your thinking around that? Ultimately, people should have what they need to live well first. You know, we supported the disability bill that went through recently around increased funding. We will support any initiative like that. People should have what they need to live. Um, and you're right, COVID has obviously made these things worse. At the same time, I do think we're seeing people choosing made, not, not because they truly desire made, because they don't know what else to do and they don't have any other options it's a cry for help i think in many many cases so um you know we're focused on end of life there are other organizations focused on social security and those needs i, I think it's ultimately up to the government and the people in canada to you know kind of put your money where your mouth is support people and fund the things that people need to live a, a good life. No one should be talking about made whether they truly want it or not, because they need something else. That's not why we have assisted dying legislation. That is not why we have the assisted dying legislation. Absolutely. And I know 
probably like me, when you see the next Kickstarter campaign out there, when a person is asking for money as opposed to accessing made, at the very least makes the, ha- the hairs on your arms stand up. And I know, and having you know spent a fair bit of time uh, looking at the Dying With Dignity website, that you're doing so much more work in different spaces to contribute to that not happening in terms of increasing people's death literacy, thinking about the advocacy work that you do. And that was really clear that it's not just the role of Dying With Dignity Canada uh, to do that, that there are other organizations that have a role and responsibility, including our government. So again, the magic wand question, you though personally as Helen Long, what would you like to see happen next? Yeah, I mean, really, I just want, (laughs) I want the world to be a better place. You know, I want people to have what they need. I want those who choose made, the people who have decided that's their choice or whatever their end of life choice is, to be able to access their choice without barrier. You know, that they, for sure, there's an eligibility criteria, there's safeguards. In the case of other services, maybe there's some process they have to go through that, but ultimately people can live well and then they can die well and they can choose how they do both. And do you think we're doing this in the right time? Do you think Canada is ready for the legislation? I think people in Canada are ready for the legislation. You know, I know the media writes a lot of stories. I know that there is speculation that there are politicians who maybe are not ready. Um, Certainly there are some clinicians who are not ready and that's fine. Clinicians can choose what they participate in. But year over year, our polling, Ipsos polling, which is national validated surveying, it shows that Canadians are ready. Uh, Canadians want changes to law and Canadians accept the law. So, you know, I think that's what drives change is what the people in the country want. And politicians and media should be listening to that and listening to those perspectives. Agreed. Huzzah. I hope they are listening. And we certainly are listening to Senator Pamela Wall, and we had the opportunity to have her on and, of course, hear her at the conference that you organized last November. So, Helen, this has been an incredible opportunity to speak with you. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about Dying with Dignity Canada, about anything that perhaps we haven't touched on today? Yeah, I mean, I think we've touched on a lot of things. I spoke a little bit about how people can get involved in advocacy. You know, people will say to me, I'll say, you know, call your MP, write them a letter. And people will say to me, oh, I'm just, you know, a person living in their writing. Nobody cares. But that's really not true. Every letter that gets sent in gets counted. Every meeting you have with a member of parliament has value. They work for you, you know, they're elected officials and your vote is important. What you have to say is important. So I would point you back to that. Um, The website again, dyingwithdignity.ca. There's also a ton of educational and informational resources on there. So uh, if you're thinking about end of life or death, really death in general, death literacy and um, you know, the the feelings we have where we're reluctant to talk about death. If you'd like to get more aware, visit our website and look for that. If you're someone who's on a journey towards end of life or or thinking that you might be uh, helping a friend or a loved one on that journey, visit our website because we can help you with that. And finally, I'll maybe just let people know that we are a charity. We're funded almost entirely by individual supporters across the country. And that's what makes our work possible, uh, possible and free. So thanks to all of those people who've been so supportive for so many years. 
And so, Helen, it sounds like Dying with Dignity Canada has their work cut out for them in the next little bit, combating forced transfers, working towards advanced requests. Is there anything else that you've got coming down the pipes in terms of thinking about where your organization is going to go? I mean, you know, we're we're always thinking about what next. I, I inevitably at some point in the year will say to my team, we might have been a little overly ambitious this year, um, but we always get it done. So I think really, you know, when it comes to death literacy and just increasing comfort around death, that's something that we're starting to do a lot more work in. We've got a newer program called Death Dialogues for people. Um, we're exploring a couple of other support programs along that lines. Um, really looking at diversifying our audience. Um, next year, we'll get the first stats from Health Canada that include a little more demographic information. But we know anecdotally that MADE is delivered to um, one very consistent audience. So we're really working hard to talk to people in different communities uh, in all types of different ways. You know, when I say diverse, I, I could meet any kind of diversity. So really expanding our work in that area to try and involve more people across the country. Um, and then just, you know, whatever comes up, whatever the next big challenge or barrier is, we'll be ready to shift gears because ultimately we want to ensure people have choice and, um, you know, legislative changes are what make that happen in the most cases. but. Provincially, we talked a bit about the forced transfer situation. People may not be aware of this. MADE is legislated federally, but as you will know, Kathy, it's delivered provincially. So in every province or territory, there is generally a slightly different process, a slightly different reason that the barrier exists, and a slightly different thing we have to do to fix it. So just dealing with every province and territory alone on some of these issues will be um, many years work for us. And I know we're grateful that Dying with Dignity Canada is there and you today, Helen, for having spoken with us and taken the time. It was uh, great to have this opportunity and we very much appreciated the frank discussion. And I think what you guys are doing and the guests that you've had to really, you know, increase awareness and spread information is, is super and we're so glad we could be a part of it. So thank you. It's been fun to have this kind of platform to speak with people. So thank you very much. How fun was that? That was amazing. She's amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion yet again. Uh, what a cool opportunity to speak with Helen and to learn more about Dying with Dignity Canada. I completely agree. I appreciated her frank approach to some of the things that we pitched to her in terms of questions. I think, too, something that I really wanted to discuss with you um, post-interview was you and I talk a lot about true choice and we talk with our guests about true choice and recently it's occurred to me and particularly with Helen's you know sharing uh, today that true choice is only possible in socially just systems yeah and I've heard that loud and clear too I also really appreciated how when I kind of said you know if we want to have true choice what do you think we need to do and she's not just owning that for herself or for her organization. She actually very gently called the rest of us, but also other organizations in the micro, meso, and macro spheres of life to say, hey, we all have ownership and duty at end of life. And you and I always joke, we say there's enough death to go around. And we say that off the cuff, but death impacts every area of society. 
And so if you're going to have true choice, we need to build capacity in so many areas. Yeah, and that just circles back so nicely to what Helen said about medical assistance and diet legislation was not put in place for any other reason than medical assistance to die. Um, And it's not to be used as a countermeasure um, because we as a society are not meeting our people where they need to be met. And that came across loud and clear and really resonated with me in light of some of the other conversations we have been having on this podcast, either stuff that you've already heard, listener, or stuff that's coming down the pipes. And I think that's really important. I also wrestle with what I was also hearing in terms of the individual's right to choose and the expectation of what society provides for people. So I think that'll probably be a continued piece that we talk about as we move forward. And Dying with Dignity Canada, under Helen's leadership, is also moving forward. And I, for one, am excited to see and hear what they do next. Absolutely. With her at the helm and the not-for-profit that she shared with us, their purview and what they're hoping to do next, I too am excited and, quite frankly, relieved um, as a Canadian about really what they're hoping to tackle. I love the idea that Dying with Dignity Canada is overly ambitious with some of the things they want to tackle because it means that they know that there are things that need doing and that they're they're going to get them done. And I think with Helen at the helm, they're going to get done. I think so too. And so, dear listener, if you're not familiar with Dying with Dignity Canada, please go and check out that organization. Learn more about it. And I've got another request, a little bit different than our discussion today. So you will notice, if you've been listening to our podcast, that we are speaking with a lot of fabulous women. And we would like in our podcast to increase our diversity, increase the reach. Casting a wider net, if it were. Oh, I like that. Casting a wider net. So listeners, if you have any suggestions of people we could be or should be, speaking with, don't hesitate to let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, let's keep those conversations going and thanks so very much for listening. did